0: Soho, the neighborhood that you're now in, was the epicenter of refugee life in the 1850s. A relatively cheap area in central London, and the home to immigrant populations for some years before 1848, it was a natural gathering point for the exiles. It's hard to know exactly how many of them there were, but the Metropolitan Police counted around 7,000 refugees across London, most of whom lived in Soho, and over 1,000 of whom were German. An 1853 article in Charles Dickens's newspaper, Household Words, painted a vivid picture of the exile's presence in Soho while indulging in some fairly familiar national stereotypes. Here's the newspaper article. Here are Frenchmen, ex-representatives of the people, ex-ministers, prefects, and Republican commissaries, men yet young, but two-thirds of whose lives have been spent in prison or in exile. Here are German philosophical Democrats, scientific conspirators who have somehow found themselves upon barricades. Here are simple-minded German workmen who have shaken off dreams of German unity to find themselves in this back slum far away from home and friends. Here are swarthy Italians cursing Radetzky and telling with wild gesticulations how Rome was defended. Here are the poor, betrayed, cozened Hungarians, with glossy beards and small embroidered caps and braided coats. Lastly, here are the Poles, those historic exiles who have been so long fugitives from their country. There was a similarly dizzying array of geographical and social diversity even within the German refugee population. Rosemary Ashton explains.
1: Most of the German refugees, like the other European refugees on their arrival in London, were pretty hard up, some of them actually destitute. The Germans, rather unlike the French or the Poles or the Russians, came from a wide variety of background, of education and of circumstances. There were tailors and clockmakers and watchmakers who were exceedingly hard up and continued to be hard up in London as they were fighting for ill-paid jobs with local poor Londoners. There were also a number of professors and journalists and teachers and they tended to do rather better, although of course there wasn't really enough lecturing or teaching to go round all the educated Germans who came over, including Marx. Meanwhile, there were others who were even worse off. But what tended to happen was that there were a few rich German political self-exiles, really, uh, people who had left because they were broad-minded, forward-minded, and objected to the censorship and so on that was going on back home. So there were one or two aristocrats, German aristocrats, who did their best for the poorer compatriots. They would give them jobs tutoring their children, for example. Some of Marx's friends, like Wilhelm Pieper, actually got a job tutoring the children of the London branch of the Rothschild family so tutoring, teaching ad hoc teaching here and there Gottfried Kinkel, who was one of the more famous of the exiles had been a professor of art history at Bonn University he came over and he managed to pick up bits and pieces of teaching in the New Ladies College in Bedford Square for example and in Queen's College which was another college for girls he picked up various pieces of teaching and tutoring although it was quite hard work actually and the German exiles, though they tended not to get on with one another there were great disagreements political and personal but they did try to come together to help one another, so they would lend one another a suit for a a job interview, or they would, the richer ones would uh, put up some of the poorer ones in their spare rooms and so on, until things got better. So there was a kind of generosity going round amongst this really very heterogeneous group of German
0: 20 Great Windmill Street was a crucial location for the sociability that Professor Ashton describes. Until the 1990s, it was the site of the Red Lion Pub. This establishment provided meeting space for the London branch of the Communist League, and Marx and Engels had both visited this site before 1848. As I said earlier, the Communist Manifesto had been written for the Communist League, and at least some of its contents emerged from discussions held here. The Red Lion was also the headquarters for the German Workers' Educational Society, or Arbeitersbildungsverein. This organization, which was founded in 1840 and lasted into the middle of the 20th century, provided workers' education and set up a relief committee for the refugees, which Marx helped to run. He also gave classes on political economy here, and it was in this context that Marx and others initially hoped to relaunch the revolutions of 1848. Gareth Stetman Jones
2: So the important thing to note is that it wasn't London or Soho, where we're particularly talking now, was flooded out suddenly with German refugees and they set up an organisation. There was already existing an association of this Bildungsverein, Arbeiters Bildungsverein, just as there had been in Brussels and there was in Paris. The ideas they had were that this was the outward face of a political organisation. Very often the leaders of these associations were also members of originally the League of the Just, which was set up in Paris in the mid to late 30s. It then changed its name to the Communist League in 1847. And obviously Marx and Engels, as is well known, played a very prominent part there. They wrote the Communist Manifesto for it. Marx does what he had done already in Brussels, which is He gives lectures. He gives lectures around the theme of wage, labour and capital and his particular readings of the capitalist economy. And he gets a sort of small but devoted following, and that's one of his connections with this German Workers' Association.
0: It quickly became clear that any new revolutionary action would be difficult to achieve, not least because the exiles themselves were highly internally divided. Rosemary Ashton explains some of these divisions.
1: A number of the exiles from different European countries tended, as is perhaps not to be expected, not to work very well together. And our great source for this, other than Marx himself, is Alexander Herzen, the famous Russian exile. Herzen was rich and aristocratic, and indeed he employed one of the German exiles, one of the female exiles, Malvida von Meisenburg, as the governess to his children. So he knew the German exiles through her, and he knew of them very well, including Marx. And his account in his memoirs is that there were 40 times 40 schisms among the Germans. Like Germany itself, he said, they were fractured. They just could not agree. And this is actually something that's worth pointing out, that Germany was not a a nation as such. It was a set of principalities, all of them led by more or less autocratic princes and dukes and so on. And so the different uprisings and different lender of Germany, tended to be undertaken by different types of people. And some of the things that they wanted, some wanted just unification, which of course is what happened under Bismarck in the 1870s. And so a number of the exiles who started off in London ended up, round about 1870, going back to Germany because they felt that was what they had aimed at. Others, like Marx of course actually wanted a whole root and branch change to politics, including British politics. They wanted international communism or socialism and there were various different strands and versions of politics in between. Karl Blint, who was another of the rather more important exiles, was an out-and-out republican. So you had all these great men of the exile as Marx called them, scorned but they all wanted their own thing, and they all had a little group of acolytes, and they couldn't really get together and agree, as I said, partly because they had a variety of political aims, partly because a number of them were professorial, uh, highly educated types, political philosophers, who genuinely thought that they were going to change the future, as Marx, of course, did too. So that's why the German exile politics in particular was pretty highly strung and and hot-headed.
0: These, and other problems, ultimately led to permanent and bitter splits amongst the Germans, notably between Marx and his followers, and those of August Velik.
2: It's a highly politicized atmosphere There's a lot of disagreement about how to interpret the revolution, what will happen next, what the best tactics are. As a man who has a sort of charismatic place among these people called Willich, who was a professional soldier by origin, came from a good family and so on, very much liked the military life, and he sets up a sort of barracks for the unemployed German artisans who come over, didn't have a place to sleep overnight and so on. So he's highly appreciated for the welfare side of it, but he also has these militant interventionist ideas about planning the next insurrection if he can. Another thing which we learn from this period is all these émigré groups, but Germans in particular, are riddled with spies and espionage of various kinds and sometimes it's done even without them suspecting that they are being employed by a foreign government. Marx himself writes this rather dreadful piece called The Great Men of Exile which is attacking all the other exiles in 1848 and actually it's at the instance of someone who's working for the Prussian Foreign Office. (laughs)
0: Rosemary Ashton adds that Marx's personality also played into these splits.
1: Marx himself as again is fairly well known and perhaps to be expected given his temperament tended to stay aloof if he could from the other German exiles of course he had his own party those who followed him in the communist cause and those he tried to nurture tried to educate in his way of thinking he tended to fall out with them all or to be disdainful of them they weren't clever enough they didn't understand they tended to mix with non-communists which he didn't approve of So Marx was rather a difficult master to please. So he didn't really take part in the social life. His social life was concerned with his family and with Engels in Manchester because Engels in Manchester could not only support him financially from that distance, but could tell him about the industrial conditions in Manchester, which he knew all about, of course, at first hand, and could also conduct this correspondence, which the two of them recognised would be a kind of archive for the future for socialism and communism, as indeed
0: it is. So, despite his activism in the early 1850s, Marx's time in London became increasingly devoted to his own writings, as well as to his hectic family life. To get a glimpse of that life, we'll now head to 64 Dean Street, where the family lived for most of 1850. Carry on down Great Windmill Street and take a right on Brewer Street. This will tee into Warder Street, and when it does, you'll notice Old Compton Street coming off of water just to your right. Head down Old Compton Street and take the first left onto Dean Street. Number 64 is on your left and it's currently occupied by the Rambla restaurant.